This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In 1740 in Berlin, Frederick II, the new king in Prussia, took an opportunity that earned him the title Frederick the Great. In Vienna, the Holy Roman Emperor had died suddenly, and in St. Petersburg, the Russian Empress died shortly afterwards. Frederick took advantage of the turmoil, seizing the rich Austrian province of Silesia to the south. Before his Saxon neighbour had their chance, he was 28. He fought off a broad alliance for over 20 years, with only Britain offering occasional support. His eventual victory turned Prussia from a small state into a leading European power, a significant achievement for a man whose father had threatened to execute him, who considered himself a philosopher, was a gifted flute player, and became arguably the most enlightened ruler of his age. With me to discuss Frederick the Great are... Tim Blanning, Emeritus Professor of Modern European History at the University of Cambridge. Katrin Cole, Professor of German Literature at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of Jesus College. And Thomas Biscop, Lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of Hull. Tim Blanning, what was Prussia's place in Europe in Frederick's childhood? Frederick summed it up when he came to the throne in 1740 and wrote about his, uh, what he had inherited in, when he came to the throne. And he said that Prussia was like a hermaphrodite. It wasn't uh, quite a a nation. It wasn't quite a state. But it was a bit more than an electorate. It was somewhere in between a minor state and a a major one. And did, did that annoy him? Did he determine to do something about it? He was absolutely determined to do something about it. He had to make a name for himself. He'd come... He came to the throne with a very useful inheritance indeed from his father, but he had been so abused by his father during the previous 28 years that he was psychologically damaged. And in part, his invasion of Silesia in December 1740 is is a kind of therapy. He's uh, showing that he's he's more of a man than his father was, who had never been able to decide to use the instrument that he had created. But this father of his was the Frederick William. Uh, there was a Frederick, then a Frederick William, then the Frederick. Uh, and he was uh, always in military uniform in public. He built up a massive army uh, for the size of the place, an enormous army, and he built up a big pile of money. Uh, but he was determined that this boy of his would become a military man. He gave him a tremendous education, though, but he also hammered him in public, didn't he? I think he gave him a most awful childhood. He wanted Frederick to be a chip off the old block. And if the old block is hit too hard, then the chip can spin off in all kinds of unexpected directions. And that's what happened with Frederick. He wanted Frederick to be, oh, three or four things. He tells his tutors that he must become a thrifty manager of his money. He must become an enthusiastic and dedicated soldier. He must become a dedicated huntsman. Frederick William I was very keen on hunting. And last but not least, he had to become a pious Christian. His father was a parsimonious Calvinist, wasn't he? He was indeed, yes. Now, um, there was this incident where Frederick and a friend of his, the two young men in the army, because he served in various uh, r- various stations in the army, he really got to... When, they, when Frederick was 18, tried to flee from the army, tried to get to England and were caught. And can you tell us what happened then? 
Yes, I can, although I think I ought to add that he had been so abused by this time that flight seemed abused, to be... Abused, we mean hit in public, Kane. That's what we're talking about. That's humiliated, humiliated in public, physically abused in public. Frederick William I has told Frederick, if my father had behaved to me like I behaved to you, I would have killed myself. And there's, there's plenty of that going on. And by 1730, Frederick's absolutely desperate, and so he, try, he tries to run away. Yes, he tries to run away to, to England. It was a fiasco. Uh, in, indeed, I think psychologists today would interpret it more as a cry for help than a, a, a serious attempt. With a, a friend, because two of them had to go. Well, he had he had uh, cons- he had those who had be- set it up for him. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant von Kutter was the was the most important of them. Uh, there's another one called von, von Kite who get who get who gets away, um, who does actually es- escape. Well, it, it was it was abortive. It was over even before it started. Frederick is caught. Uh, Cutter is arrested. Frederick is brought back to Custrine on the on the River Oder. He's interrogated, uh, and for a long time, Frederick thought that he was actually going to be executed for desertion. Cutter is executed, and indeed, Frederick is made to watch the execution. He's beheaded in front of his in front of his very eyes, and he at that point he collapsed. Not surprisingly, Cutter and he had a very close relationship. Whether it was a sexual relationship has been much debated. It, it's it's possible, but the jury's out on that one. In, in fact, it'll never come back back in, because we'd never be able to be certain about it. But it was a, a, a really terrible experience. So take a sign, we'll, we'll step aside for a moment from that, because you've been very graphic and covered everything there, Tim. Thank you very much. Catherine Cole, before he met his, before his father took him over at the age of seven, that fantastic age of seven, which seems to appear everywhere in every religion, civilization, whatever, never mind. Uh, his mother, Sophia Dorothea, Sophia Dorothea of Hanover, Looked after him. He was brought up in this court of women, in a way. And can you tell us about that? Well, I think it was a very complex environment in which to grow up, um, and we get a an insight into that from his sister's memoirs, Wilhelmine, who paints a picture of a childhood that was probably very unhappy in the sense that... Are we still t- sorry, can I just go... We're talking about the first seven years, aren't we, now, with his mother? Yes. Yeah, right, thank you, sorry. I think it was unhappy in the sense that the children felt part of a world that was full of intrigue, where they were constantly under pressure from the father's side, from the mother's side, um, and from the various courtiers who were pandering to different bits of the system. And I think that will have partly caused a lot of negative pressure. I think it also will have brought Frederick and Wilhelmina very close together and they shared a a lot of interests, cultural interests. I think they must have developed a, a joint fascination with and love for dogs that uh, were imp- which were very important um, throughout their lives. And at a very late stage, um, or so said, well, in Ansonsalsi, which was um, Frederick's Yes, his 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 home in uh, in many ways. Later on, he built a temple of friendship for Wilhelmina, which shows her sitting in the middle in a, quite a small statue, um, holding a book and with a dog. Can I get back to that childhood? His mother was very educated. It's there that he, he as I understand it. Please tell me if I'm wrong. It'd be helpful for all of us. He 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 got in. He got an interest in literature, in music. He went on to be a composer, a very good flautist. All that sort of stuff happened in the first few years. Yes, I think in this environment he um, was working with private tutors, and he developed a passion for literature, which never left him and which remained a powerful force later on, right the way through his life. 
And I think he began to see... He must have begun very early on to see himself in terms of his cultural life, which he later on managed to marry up with his military aspirations. And I think the concept of fame is absolutely central in all of that. Now, at what point exactly he would have Can started... Can you develop that? That's very interesting. The concept of fame. You think he had that as a little boy? I don't know at what point that starts. And the documentation, I think, is probably not there to tell us. But what... He, he clearly started reading classical literature through his tutors, as one did at the time, um, at, a, at an early stage, and it became part of his mental furniture. And I think from the very start, um, in this environment, which was both p- private and public, and in many ways very rich culturally, but also full of tensions, political tensions, he will have developed an ability to see himself as a public figure at the same time as a private. I think that private figure, I think that, um, the, the basis for that role is being laid at a very early stage. Do we have evidence that he carried on the idea of himself being a cultured boy when his father, as it were, took him over at the age of seven, that he's still trying to hold on to that? Absolutely. And there was scope for realising that. So in the, in the years right up to um, his... Uh, to, to when he came to the throne, there were periods when he was able to um, develop that side of his personality and in quite a full way. Um, and But it was always in tension with his father's aspirations who, who emphasised the, the military aspirations, the religious aspirations and so on. And it, it, re- it really was coming very much from his mother's side. Thomas Piscop, at the beginning of his reign, he, he was already calling himself a philosopher, which was shorthand for a, uh, a non-Christian, uh, really. Or that's one of the things it was shorthand for. And he went to war almost immediately. It turned out to be crucial. Why did he want to go to war so quickly? And why did he choose to invade Silesia? Was there any provocation? There was no provocation. And actually, the invasion of Silesia came as a total surprise to the Habsburgs, to the whole of Europe, and perhaps even to Frederick himself, because Silesia had not figured very prominently in his political plans before he acceded to the throne. There was a couple of reasons. First, Silesia was a very rich and fertile province, which contributed about 25% of the Habsburgs' overall budget. It's enormous. It's quite a lot. It was also very rich um, and um, very strong in trade and manufacturing, areas Frederick's core provinces around Berlin were notoriously lacking. Well, secondly, there were strategic considerations. Um, Frederick feared, not without reason, that if he didn't take Silesia for himself, the neighbouring Saxons might take it. Um, And we should keep in mind that in 1740, Prussia was not yet a great power, and his main rivals were not yet the Habsburgs, but the electors of Saxony, who were also elected kings of Poland. Now, Silesia um, separated Poland and Saxony, and had Saxon plans to acquire at least part of Silesia succeeded, um, a huge land block might have emerged between the River Elbe in the west and the suburbs of Kiev in the, est, in the east. And Saxony-Poland might have become the next great power in Central Europe, not Brandenburg. So, sorry, please go but on. Th- thirdly, I think there's another aspect. Um, Silesia was the only Habsburg province bordering on Prussian territory. And if Frederick was to benefit from the dynastic crisis of the House of Habsburg, it had to, he had to strike in Silesia. Um, and he really wanted to strike. He wanted to use the army he got from his father. He wanted to announce himself on the European stage with an eclat, a big bang. And as he wrote to his friend Jordan, he wanted to read his name in the gazettes. 
As early as 1745, when he returned from war after the Peace of Dresden, he had his Berlin papers instructed to welcome him back to Berlin as Frederick the Great, only five years after his accession to the throne. And that was, I think, what his invasion of Silesia was really about. So it was an extremely clever, intelligent move if you wish to expand your, your small monarchy. Yes, it was, you know, like you might say in football, it was a kind of six-point six gain. You took something that your rivals might have got, plus you made yourself a name on the European stage. Was it a quick campaign? Did he go in there with this massive army, 80,000 people his father had built up? Did he go in there and take it easily, or was it a tough battle? Well, the, the actual occupation of Silesia in the middle of peace was easy. Um, in, the, in, in the winter of 1740-71, the Austrians attacked his army and he won his first um, victory at Molwitz. Well, he didn't win it. His generals won it for him because um, at the crisis of the battle, he actually escaped from the battle and hid somewhere. He uh, was almost captured by the Austrians, uh, an episode he liked to gloss over uh, later in his histories of his reign. Um, so the first campaign was pretty easy for him and he managed to conclude peace with Maria Theresa, the Habsburg um, Queen of Hungary um, um, and Queen of Bohemia already in 1742 because by then uh, not only Prussia was attacking uh, the Habsburg monarchy but also Saxony, Bavaria, France so the Habsburgs were encircled um, from by, by various European powers and glad to be able to get rid of at least Prussia. But he spent the next 23 years holding on to Silesia and making sure he secured it and at one stage in the Seven Years' War massive powers arranged against him Austria as I remember Austria, France, Russia and Sweden and he had support from Britain uh, intermittent support but real support uh, and he managed to come through that well he managed to come through that because on paper the, the, the coalition uh, the anti-Federation coalition was overwhelming I mean, just consider that Prussia had around 3 million inhabitants at the time France alone had 20 million inhabitants um, but in practice um, this coalition was faced by the same problems many uh, uh, alliances in the 18th century and well into the Napoleonic period um, were confronted with. Um, all, all partners had different aims. The Habsburgs wanted to dismember the Prussian monarchy, whereas France was fighting Britain in the colonies and on the ocean. There was a problem of distance and communication. The Russian armies in the east were very often about a thousand miles away from French armies on the Rhine, and it was very difficult to coordinate action. Uh, and thirdly, of course, um, Frederick was his own master. He, he, didn't, he wasn't responsible to anybody else. Whereas the generals he confronted had to report back to the courts of Vienna, St. Petersburg and Versailles all the time. They couldn't act independently, and that was an advantage of Frederick. And it helped that his two most senior generals, or his brother and his cousin, his brother particularly, was extremely good general. Tim Blanning. Yes, I just wanted to add about um, this concentration of authority, civilian authority with military authority. Unity of command is a shorthand way of referring to that. This looks like being a huge advantage, and it was, as Thomas has just said, that meant he could move much more quickly, much more decisively. But there was a downside to this, and that was that if things went wrong, then he had the power to make things very wrong indeed. So, for example, at Kunersdorf, which was the great disaster in 1759, when he came within an ace of total destruction and, thought, and talked about suicide, uh, any other commander who didn't enjoy unity of command would have stopped at some stage in the battle, and not pushed it. But because Frederick had absolute despotic authority, he could he could make you know a, 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 a complete pig's ear of it, which he which he did. So unity of command, okay, it works most of the time. But when it goes against you, it goes against you very badly, as Napoleon found out. 
But Napoleon was a great admirer of his. Napoleon thought him the greatest tactician in history. So Napoleon was no slouch. So why did he say? Why did he use that phrase? Well, Napoleon was wrong about lots of things, and he was wrong about, <laughs> and he was wrong about that too. Uh, I think the the comment was made in reference to Frederick's great masterpiece, which was the Battle of Leuthen in 1757, the 5th of December 1757, and that was an extraordinarily brilliant uh, battle. There's no doubt about that. But for every one that Frederick one, he lost one. I, I don't see him as a great uh, general, actually. A great warlord, but not a great general. You've got to be brisk about the distinction there, Tim, because okay. I want to move um, Warlord uh, and general, what's the difference, right. and why uh, does it matter? Uh, uh, it, it, mat- it matters a lot. His brother, Prince Henry, was a simply brilliant general. He never lost a battle, he never lost an engagement, he'd lots of brilliant things. Frederick himself paid tribute to him. Uh, and yet... If uh, Prince Henry had been in charge at the Battle of Kunersdorf or after it, he would have made peace and Silesia would have been returned to Austria. It's quite clear that would have done. But what Frederick had as a warlord was this indomitable will to go on and on and on, outrance, right to the end, no matter what it cost, and he could take his army with him. And that's why, at the end of the day, they, they eventually emerged, you know, totally exhausted but victorious. Prince Henry would have given it all away. Catherine uh, Cole, at the start of his reign, there was great excitement among German intellectuals and artists and so on. This was a, obviously an extraordinary cultivated man. He, he wrote books, he, he wrote verse, he composed music, he played the flute and so on. And they thought, here we go. And what happened? Well, what happened was that uh, he came to the throne and everybody expected him to be uh, a peaceful monarch who would focus on... Uh, the arts would uh, support them, would above all support the German arts, and that for literature meant um, literature in German. Whereas his military campaign straight away turned that on its head. Nobody really quite knew how to um, situate that, but there was tremendous enthusiasm also for his military prowess amongst writers who later on and sometimes simultaneously also criticised um, the, the, the conquering uh, spirit. So th- there was quite a lot of tension there and I think different, um, different tendencies within, within the response and there's no unified response and I think that's perhaps one of the, the hallmarks of his, of his reign in cultural terms. In relation to German literature... It, uh, or I think German culture generally, but for, he did a lot for German culture in putting it on the map, in uh, putting it in touch what do you, with what, what, Europe. What's your focus of the word culture? I think culture would encompass perhaps the world of the arts, the humanities, um, dialogue, architecture, and uh, also the sciences. So there was... I think the tension was perceived between his military um, focus on battles, on uh, spending a lot of the of, 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 the, of the money on on uh, on wars, on uh, on military campaigns, but at the same time that also, in fact, um, gave tremendous impetus to a lot of his uh, cultural initiatives, like, for example, architecture, which after every battle um, he straight away then commissioned new. Projects, um, but weren't they a bit uh, cast down by the fact that, as I understand it, French was French was his first language, and he wrote in French and liked to speak in French, and so on. And only his footnotes were in German. And certainly for German writers, that was a tremendous blow. 
and they were at that point there were a number of writers so Lessing was one of them Halder was another one um, who Klopstock was another one Klopstock was uh, a, a writer who had who wrote an epic from the mid 1740s which was uh, the intention was to put Germany on the map, finally, or German culture, and uh, Klopstock believed that that is what he was doing. Lessing was trying to establish a national theatre. All those endeavours were could have been supported by um, by Frederick in ways that incorporated the German language and saw the German language as central, whereas, in fact, he wasn't at all interested in anything that was happening in the German language and focused rather on... The, on the French connections. On the other hand, that was also tremendously enriching because it gave a European dimension to all cultural endeavour, including literature. You wanted to come in there? Yeah, too. I was going to come in a little <coughs> earlier just to say something about <coughs> Frederick's attitude to culture. Um, it's, it's not just ordinary patronage for him. It's a substitute religion. He didn't believe in any form of revealed religion, indeed had only greatest contempt for it. But he had to find some kind of transcendental substitute, and he finds it in culture. He's quite eloquent on this point. In prose and in verse, he says quite explicitly, this, this, this is what opens up a spiritual world for him. And so when, right at the very beginning of the reign, one of the first things he does is to commission the largest opera house in Europe, north of the Alps, uh, he's creating not just an opera house, but, but a temple of the arts. It's freestanding. It's not part of the uh, royal palace. It's something which, uh, which, which for him is, is his... Uh, it's dedicated to Apollo and the Muses, and that's the superscription on, the, on, the, on this temple of art. I'll come back in a second. Thomas Biscop, he, to the contrary, he welcomed, he was particularly welcoming my French intellectuals and most spectacularly of the great Voltaire, Candide, the Philosophique, and so on and so forth, who came. He was hunted around Europe, Voltaire, and he found, for three years anyway, a place to, a place of great toleration, as other, other people did, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the court of Frederick. Uh, and Voltaire became, will you tell me how important Voltaire was to Frederick? Well, Voltaire was at Frederick's court as a chamberlain, as a courtier, for three yes. years, but um, the correspondence spans more than four decades. It started when Frederick was a crown prince and it ended only with Voltaire's death in 1778. Um, Voltaire was about 15 years older than Frederick, and he was French, and I think that, that shaped their relationship for a long time. And um, he was... Voltaire, just, sorry, can I just interrupt? I'm sorry to interrupt, but just so that the listeners... Voltaire was incredibly famous. He was for a man who sought fame, this was... Outside, well, probably the most famous man in Europe, Voltaire. Well, he, he and was, infamous at the same time in some countries. He, he was already very famous in the 1730s and became ever more famous over the uh, next few decades, um, in a way parallel to Frederick. So they both rose to ever, ever greater fame in the course of the 1740s, 50s and 60s. Now, Frederick used Voltaire as a kind of tutor, um, an agent uh, and an editor of his works. Um, both when uh, Voltaire was present at Frederick's court and in correspondence, Voltaire was actually uh, asked to correct Frederick's French. Voltaire introduced Frederick to uh, French poetry and he taught him the basics of his um, concept of history, which Frederick then took on in his own historical works, which in turn were edited by Voltaire. But secondly, Voltaire was absolutely central to Frederick's image-making. Frederick wanted to be remembered by posterity as a great monarch, um, and he knew 
that in the 18th century, those who would determine the place of monarchs in history were enlightened writers. And above all, of course, the literary superstar of the age, Voltaire. So from the start on, their relationship was a very public affair. They knew their letters would be published sooner or later. Um, and indeed, um, Voltaire's, the letters Voltaire wrote from Potsdam back to Paris were expected to be circulated in Paris amongst philosophers. Um, to, 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 to um, spread the fame of Frederick as the man who elevated uh, Sandy and poor Brandenburg Prussia to a civilised nation. What was their personal relationship? Did they... Uh, I'm sorry, this is rubbish, but did they get on? Well, obviously they got on, but how well did they get on? Well, they, they met only after a long time. I mean, they, they started um, um, their correspondence in the 1730s and they only met, I think, in 1750. So they had a long time to prepare for this. And they always said that they really liked each other and they were splendid. But, of course, things turned sour after a short time. Here we have two big egos, Voltaire, who wouldn't tolerate any other uh, eminent French writers at Frederick's court, who wanted to be top dog at Frederick's court, and Frederick, who really wanted to use Voltaire as one of his courtiers, of course the most eminent and prominent one, but he really treated him pretty badly in a number of ways. And we have uh, the correspondence between Frederick and his brothers, uh, and between uh, Frederick's brothers, you know, where they say, where they kind of treat Voltaire as a kind of court jester and say, oh, Voltaire amused us again so much last night at dinner, you know. So in a way, we, we sh shouldn't just think of uh, Voltaire as the great philosopher and writer at Frederick's court, but also as a kind of um, um, sociable figure um, invited to amuse the court. The same way that Mozart was put down at court, isn't it? Tim, do you want to come in? Yeah, I did, because uh, just one thing, one very important service that Voltaire performed for Frederick was to, was to brush up his French. Uh, Frederick's French was very good, uh, but it wasn't perfect. <coughs> And so uh, Frederick sends his his draft poems and uh, prose and so on to Frederick for it to be for it to be polished. And the one of the reasons why they fell out was the the, the story went around. I think La Maitrie, who was a, a refugee in in Prussia and Stepney, put it about the Voltaire and said, "Oh no, the king has sent me another basket of dirty laundry to be washed." Uh, and that got back to Frederick. It was intended to get back to him, and he didn't, didn't like the sound of that one little bit. I mean, Voltaire was basically a rascal. I mean, throughout his life, he was a rascal. And he got involved in a couple of really murky uh, business deals while he was in Prussia between 1750 and 1753. These were well publicised, and Frederick found them very offensive and humiliating. Can you... Uh, you mentioned that he abhorred all religions, and he did gain a great reputation for toleration... Um, what else would he tolerate that other rulers were not tolerating at the time? Well, I don't think there's any doubt that the Prussia that Frederick created was the most tolerant state in Europe. Uh, a French envoy, the Duc de Nivernais, who was there in 1756, reported back, he said, toleration in Prussia is universal, unqualified and absolute. This is the most tolerant state in Europe. Uh, and this was a man who'd, who'd lived in Prussia for, for some months, so he was speaking with some authority, and I think that is clear. So La Maitrie, whom I just mentioned, the, the most notorious materialist philosopher in, in Europe... You, you just wrote a book about man as a machine. Was Very good. Yeah. Man a machine yeah. is how it's usually translated. That, but you're absolutely right. Yes, uh, that, he, that had actually been burned by the public hangman in the Dutch Republic, uh, which had the reputation of being the most tolerant state in Europe, along with uh, Great Britain. Uh, well, La Maitrie was 
drummed out of France, he's drummed out of uh, the Dutch Republic, but Frederick welcomes him with open arms. He, he gives him a pension, he, he's, he admits him to his intimate circle, his cercle and team, uh, and, 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 make, and makes a fuss of him. And that was, a, that was a gesture that Frederick loved to make. Here is the most notorious atheist in Europe, and I am looking after him. Catherine Curl. Now, can we talk about his writing? He was a prolific writer of books and of letters, but he wrote history often to his own great advantage. But can you tell us about his writing? Well, I think that's where the where the concern with fame comes into it, and I think really that is that is a unifying uh, theme that runs through and a unifying drive. So that uh, I would agree that he see with Tim that he sees um, the arts as. sort of substitute religion but I think above all um, as uh, as was also as, as we've also already discussed there is a sense in which everything serves to put pressure on the map and puts Frederick in the position of being the ruler of um, a great state and the arts and the sciences form part of that um, his own literature forms part of that, and he wrote a lot of poems. He um, r- ride the way through his life. Um, Were they any good? They're not very good. They're conventional, but that I think it's it, it may be rather difficult to tell at the moment how good they are, how how they fit into the picture. I think one of what what interests me partly is the way in which he's using the classical. Topoi, the class, classical to- commonplaces, amongst which fame is absolutely central, the the god of Apollo versus the god of Mars. Um, it's marrying up those concepts, making something bigger than the sum of its parts, which I think was his great talent. And I think the poetry forms part of that. And it was conventional by comparison with a lot of um, what was being written in German at the time. It fitted very much into the classical heritage that um, that France um, propagated and that he was, in, in, in a way, getting through, through Voltaire, partly... Um, enabling himself to take part in a conversation that was timeless. He wasn't... The the kind of poetry he wrote was connected up with his his historical writings. His historical writings were, above all, concerned with telling a story that would show a development towards where Prussia was now. Thomas Biscup, he turned his attention to Poland, as did other countries. Poland was vast at the time, and one way or another, between them, they eliminated it. Well, Poland was not eliminated uh, during well, Frederick's not, reign. It was eliminated in the 1790s. Yeah, but, but they start. He, they they started, I'm not entirely wrong. But he did start the process. They yeah, started they, they carving did. it up, and it's a process that once it got underway, they they went back in the habit of going back and carving up a bit more of Poland to add to their possessions. Several people around Poland. That is right. Although, of course, it's only in hindsight that we can see it as a process of carving it all up. But nevertheless, it happened. Um, it it happened. Yes. Um, it happened. It happened. It started in the in in, in the first petition occurred in 1772. But of course, the process had started earlier because Poland uh, um, was a rather weak state. So, what at did the he time. go for it for? And what did he get out of it? Well, he wanted to get Western Prussia out of it above all. Um, unlike Silesia, Western Prussia, called Royal Prussia because it belonged to the Polish crown. Um, uh, had been in Frederick's political considerations for a long time, since the 1730s, really. Um, now, the main 
main chunk of, of Frederick's territories around Berlin, the capital, um, was separated by the other chunk in the east, East Prussia, by, by West Prussia. And he wanted to link these two. And he succeeded in 1772 uh, getting, getting West Prussia out of it. It was actually the smaller part um, he got. So the Habsburgs and Russia, who took other parts of Poland in the south and in the east, they got much more out of it. But he got the link. But he got the he link. He got the link. Um, I mean, that's really smart, isn't it? He got, yes. the, he got his two halves of his thingy-bobbed kingdom joined together. And although the Habsburgs got um, the king, what they later called the Kingdom of Galicia, um, they were actually quite annoyed that Frederick got that link because they didn't want Frederick to gain anything further in addition to Silesia. Never, never mind the width, feel the quality. That was what Frederick said. And he did. what he, he also actually say that? Yeah, yes, he did. Well, where's that effect? <laughs> um, it sounds better in French. Uh, <laughs> But it, what he also got, and this is something he paid special made, uh, special emphasis on, is that he got the control, uh, complete control of the river Vistula. And that gave him control of the Polish grain trade, and it meant, therefore, that Prussians would never, ever starve again. And that, that he did that he did write in his, in his history. There was another short-term consideration in organising that, and he did orchestrate the first partition of Poland, which was to get him out of a, of a potential war. And he said an Russia example to others, kept partitioning yeah. Poland until there was no Poland left yeah. uh, for 100. Now, I've got to move on, I'm sorry, because this, Tim, uh, he was forced into a political marriage when he was 21. He actually embraced it in a way because he got out of his father's grip, he got his own palace and his own court and that sort of thing. Uh, there were no children in the marriage. As soon as his father died, as soon as he inherited the throne, he sent his wife away. He scarcely saw her again ever. And there, uh, the, uh, and other rulers had children, which helped the succession question and so on. Uh, even then, rumours were circulating about uh, the fact that he might be homosexual. Were they important? Did they impinge? Did, what effect did they have? Well, I think it was very important, and I've no doubt in my mind uh, that he was homosexual. Uh, I'm go- I'm no- I know Thomas is going to say in a moment that the word homosexual wasn't invented until the 19th century, and he's absolutely right. Well, certainly he's, he's, gay wasn't, so what else no, do I no, hear? Exactly so. But there are plenty of phenomena which existed, like liberalism and nationalism, when the wor- where the words didn't come until much later. But people, when, when for example, Frederick William I called Frederick effeminate and a sodomite, he knew pretty well what he had in mind. Uh, and I don't think there's any doubt that Frederick was, was homosexual, and when his father died in 1740, he could come out. And in effect, that's what he did. For example, his valet, with whom he had almost certainly had a sexual relationship for several years, he gave to him a, a, a noble estate, which was an extraordinary gift for a, a, a new king to give to his, to his valet. His, his most recent conquest, his most recent boyfriend, Count Algarotti, he made a count, lavished him with gifts, took him uh, on his coronation journey to Königsberg, like a royal mistress, as one observer said, sitting in his carriage, like a royal mistress. Uh, th- there's never, ever going to be absolute certainty on this. How could that be? We're never, ever going to find, I don't suppose, a piece of paper on which Frederick writes, this is what I did last night with whom, and this is exactly... We're never going to find that. But the weight of evidence, I think, is overwhelming, and it was important to him. Can I, can I ask you, how did this... The, the Frederick the Great, we're talking about... Uh, military conquest. We're talking about Napoleon admiring him, the warlord that Tim spoke of. How did this play at the time? Sorry to use that word. How did, what did people think about it at the time? What, his reputation? Well, did it, were those two things held equally? Did people ignore one to emphasise the other? What was going on? I think he was seen as a, as a great ruler. He was seen as Frederick the Great in the way that he himself orchestrated 
and that meant that there were that, that his image improved over time phenomenally he had already um, he he simply from the word go had put himself on the on the world stage and he used all possible means to um to to support that and promote that and so for instance one of the um great um in um tools for that was the Berlin Academy which he founded which, by Leibniz which was founded by Leibniz mm. so it it was it already existed and i think it's an example of the way in which frederick managed to um take what was given to him and turn it into something that would promote his position and so he he strengthened it he gave it the ro- royal support he turned it into a royal royal academy and uh, interestingly voltaire writes to him that he's had a dream that Frederick should do this. This is, a, this is in 1740. And I think it was um, a week after he came to the throne that he was already looking at reports for how to put the Berlin Academy onto a new footing. Can we, uh, Thomas, can we, Thomas, can we get, can you just scan for us quite quickly the, the, the great <coughs> architectural achievements, the great, uh, his great push into that area, which, was, which were remarkable? Well, as Tim said already, right from the start, he planned to transform Berlin into a capital worthy of a great king. He had a plan to um, build a new palace in Berlin. He didn't like the old palace in which he had been treated so badly by his father. That didn't that didn't happen in the end. But he um, had the city centre of Berlin rebuilt with the Opera House, a series of palaces, not for himself, but for his uh, siblings, for his brothers. Um, um, they all got um, huge palaces. Prince Henry, for instance, got what now is the, um, the palace housing uh, Berlin's university. He also had um, Potsdam transformed. He had the city palace in Potsdam. He preferred Potsdam. Potsdam, didn't he? He preferred Potsdam. He didn't like Berlin. Mm. Um, and he had Potsdam totally rebuilt. The city palace and Sanssouci palace built from the 17, uh, in, in the 1740s. Actually, after 1748, he completely decamped to Potsdam for the remainder of his life. He spent the summers in Sanssouci Palace and the winters in the um, 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 city palace in Potsdam. He only came back to Berlin um, for certain ceremonial occasions and for the winter carnival season at court. Um, that was actually, and that's where, where, where his wife comes in. So uh, Tim just discussed uh, Frederick's sexuality, but Frederick was married for 53 years and his wife had an important role to play because somebody had to maintain the royal court in Berlin. You couldn't be a king in the 18th century without maintaining a proper court, um, entertaining ambassadors, entertaining other visiting relations, and that was what the Queen did. Uh, Tim Browning, we've got this... Man, you've talked about his enlightenment, all three of you, and the cultural contribution. Even though you've been brisk, you've been very rounded with it. He was nevertheless an absolutist. So what? how did those two knit together, Tim? I don't think there's a contradiction there. Frederick certainly denied that there was. Uh, he applied reason to problems of politics, and he applied le- reason to his own personal life. He applied reason to cultural policies, uh, and he came up with his answers. And he would have said... The rational way to approach uh, political authority is to concentrate it. If you divide it, you get a shambles, uh, like in England. Or if you divide it between a king and his mistress, then you get the sort of decadence you find in France. You have the greatest contempt for Louis XV, incidentally. What we need is a single deciding will, because that means reason can be brought to bear and reason can achieve its maximum effect. So he wouldn't have seen a a problem there. He, He wasn't a liberal. Catherine, yeah. I think one um, aspect is also perhaps interesting that we see um, in the um, in the kind of 
where, in the way in which he provoked debate. He provoked um, contradictions in many ways. And I think those often were productive contradictions. So in the, um, the, the, the prize questions that were asked um, for the, uh, the, British, uh, for the uh, Berlin Academy, um, they provoked debate across, across the languages, across the nations. They had massive impact and people wanted to gain the prize. So there was a sense of injecting a sense of provocation, competition, um, using the, 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 the classical um, sort of agonistic structures to, um, for productive effect. How, Thomas Piscop, we're coming towards the end now, unfortunately. Uh, he died in uh, 1786, uh, we're now where we are. How has his reputation changed since then? Well, Frederick, from the 18th century to 1945, really, um, has always been instrumentalised for political purposes in Germany. And much of the debate around him um, was um, born out of political hopes or fear. So for um, 18th century patriots in Prussia, he was the epitome of an emerging Prussian national spirit, various for 19th century German nationalists. He was the precursor of German unity. Of Bismarck. Um, indeed, a precursor of Bismarck. Um, for conservative politicians in the 19th century, he was the great defender of the nobility. For liberals, he was the champion of toleration. Um, so he was many things to many people. And of course, in the, in the 20th century, he, his, his, his will to persevere against adverse circumstances in war uh, was taken up um, um, in the First World War as well as in the Second World War by German propagandists to argue for a continuation of war. It's no coincidence that Frederick's uh, portrait was in Hitler's bunker in the spring of 1945. He can't be blamed for that, though, can he? No, he can't be blamed for that. But it contributed, actually, to the fact that after World War II, um, Frederick was largely forgotten in West Germany for two or three decades. Although since the 1980s, there has been a kind of renewed interest in Frederick, um, which you can observe even now uh, in, in, in Sanssouci Palace's tourist shops. Was there any sense in which he foresaw a great human... Sorry, a great German state, Tim, with Berlin at the centre of it? No, I don't think so at all. Well, I think he saw a greater Prussia, yeah. uh, and he certainly had plans for expanding Prussia, perhaps um, without, without limits. But I don't think he had any concept of a united Germany or a, or an, or a nation state. He was, uh, in as much as he was a nationalist, he was a Prussian nationalist. Anything more to say? Perhaps just to say, um, in relation to German literature, for instance, there is a very interesting effect which is that Goethe and Schiller saw Frederick as being important because um, he didn't support it. And we therefore, that became then the energising force for independence. Thank you very much, Catherine Cole, Tim Blanning and Thomas Biscop. We'll be back for our next, last programme in the series next week. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Well, thank you all very much. I do well of a time. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, you were very good. I don't think we got anything actually very wrong, did we? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm not, not sure. I, I entirely agree with your description of Frederick's sexuality. Um, we don't know what he did. You know, he. I think he made a point of making it not public and keeping it secret yeah, to a degree, at least, to playing with it. So, um, I mean, his brother Henry, he was openly homosexual. Oh, everyone um, knows know, that, and everyone knows that. Yeah. And, and Frederick was more careful in this respect. So, um, but but um, yes. he was also partly playing with. The, I mean, he was able to play with lots of different models, wasn't he? So. I don't, I, think see a, I don't see a heterosexual model in any uh, <laughs> very clearly there. Well, no, but the question the question is what what role do 
relationships between men play in that in a in a context that is as public as the one he was inhabiting where he also opened up semi-private spheres but they were never fully private were they yeah. so, right. and and the, and the, and, the, and the whole classical heritage yeah. meant that there were many different ways in which sexuality could be brought into close male relationships which where you didn't need to necessarily draw boundaries between different um yeah. between the heterosexual and the homosexual. It wasn't a binary in quite the same way, and I think that's been shown for Goethe and various other um, well, there personages in the I, I, don't, I just don't buy into that. I mean, I, this, I, I know lots and lots have been written about, about boundaries merging and fuzzy and so on. When it comes down to it, there is actually quite an important difference between heterosexuality and homosexuality, and contemporaries were well aware of it, and so was Frederick. And he liked to make statements about his sexuality. So, for example, at Sanssouci, looking out of his library window, what does he see? He sees at the end of an avenue for which he has organised a very uh, elaborate bower, uh, a statue of Antinous, uh, for which he paid a huge sum of money. Now, Antinous was the catamite of the Emperor Hadrian, who had given his life for Hadrian's life uh, to save Hadrian. Hadrian had turned him into a god. Uh, and, and there is this naked naked boy standing, uh, and Frederick looks straight out at him. The The Temple of Friendship that you mentioned, uh, which or one of you mentioned, um, which he erected for his sister, Wilhelmina, is surrounded by medallions, and each medallion shows a pair of ancient, uh, from classical antiquity, of, of male lovers. I mean, this is a statement which is, seems to me to be pretty clear. On the biggest fresco in the New Palace, he has this gigantic fresco painted by Van Lowe. What's the subject? Ganymede is introduced to Olympus. Now, come on. This is, this isn't, this is a code which even I can read. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I mean, but, but I think we, we should see it also as part of a larger aristocratic culture playing with all these things, you know. You had, I mean, it, it's no coincidence that you had Algarotti at his court, he, you know, who was in England, he was part of Burlington Circle, Lord Hervey, and so on. Um, so it's a kind of European aristocratic libertine culture with play, which plays with various aspects of sexuality. And what, what, what the certain, and I agree with you, I mean, he may have been homosexual or not, and he probably had at least homosexual inclinations but I mean what, what, what is also clear is that it got him into trouble very often you know, because during the Seven Years' War he was attacked openly by, 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 by the French and or by, by propagandists of the French as, as, as a sodomite um, you know, and that was taken on later on by Habsburg propagandists again in the late 1780s yeah, 90s yes you know, he was accused as a sodomite tyrant yeah. so, well, and he, that, so he, that he exposed himself by, by taking part in that French-dominated libertine culture, yeah. Yeah, he exposed himself dangerously. Exactly, and he's asking for it. Indeed, I yeah. mean, he writes this long verse epic called Palladium. This is, I mean, this is very, very, very significant, I think. It's about an episode in the Seven Years' War. It's an episode in the Austrian War. Oh, it's in the Austrian... Of course it is. In the, I'm sorry, it's in, in, it's in, the, in, the, in the Third Silesian War. No, Second Silesian War. I beg your pardon, Thomas. Thank you very much. Yes, it, it's, it's an episode when uh, Dage, who was secretary to uh, the, the Marquis de Valerie, who was the French ambassador, is taken prisoner by a group of Austrian hussars and allows that they were looking for Valerie and Dage um, allows them to think that he is Valerie so he's taken off. Anyway, that, that's, the, that's the basis for um, this long and sort of jokey verse epic by, by Frederick in which, uh, among other things, Dage who is, who is uh, Frederick is speaking through Dage uh, Dage recounts his youth uh, in a Jesuit seminary 
where he is, first of all, uh, propositioned by one of the Jesuit fathers and he turns the first one down. The second one is a bit more unfortunate, so he, he sort of uh, gives in and there's clearly a homosexual encounter takes place. Uh, and, the, and he's persuaded by a, a long uh, apologia in favour of homosexuality, uh, which the Jesuit presents, and which ends for, for contemporaries in a really very shocking way, in which he, he says that, I mean, as, as everyone knows, Jesus uh, Jesus Christ's favourite disciple, John, was his catamite, uh, was his Antonus. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this is this is and this poem wasn't kept secret in a secret drawer. It was printed. Well, it was, was printed in a very s small number of copies, yes. but one copy found it was given to Voltaire, so that meant the whole of Europe knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> if you want, yes, if you want to keep something secret, give it to Voltaire. But he always wanted to keep... public, and that's the wrong way. I know, mind. But he always had difficulties <laughs> negotiating yeah, secrecy. I think you know. Pardon? He always had difficulties negotiating secrecy. He, I mean, he, he knew that his literary production was highly contentious, to say the least, and could be turned against him. So he always had these things printed in very small numbers, but 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 under the proviso that these prints were not allowed to be taken out of Prussia. However, that never worked, and in the Seven Years' War, one of these prints was published by the French to embarrass Frederick. So afterwards, he, he didn't actually... He continued writing these things, but he never had them printed again. Enter um, Simon. Would anybody like to see your coffee? There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.